Steve, 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 the Bible built naive, face letters to deceive. We cross our heart and quote Descartes with scientific Steves. We have evolved, we were created. We have evolved, we have evolved. We have evolved, we have evolved, we have evolved, we have evolved. What better way to start our fuzzy logic science show here this morning? Because we're 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 in the studio. We have three of the most highly evolved species on the planet. By the name of me, Rod, our regular commentator, Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, and our special guest this morning, Dr. Nick Matsky, who is an evolutionary biologist, and he is at the Division of Evolution, Ecology, and Genetics at the ANU. Welcome, guys. Hey. Thanks for having me. I was going to say, um, if you're a fan of the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think the dolphins might get a bit upset about it. Us calling ourselves <laughs> the highest evolutionary forms. Well, I think one of my aims this morning is to utter as many uh, fallacies, misconceptions as I possibly can during the course of the program, because I've got two experts here who are going to pull me up very quickly. And, uh, well, let's start with that one. I am the most highly evolved species uh, individual on the planet, or we are. What's wrong with that statement? Ah, well, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. Evolution is, people talk about an evolutionary tree or an evolutionary ladder, but it's really more of a bush. And there's kind of no best spot to be on a bush, right? Everything on the edge of a bush is sort of equally far from the, from the middle of it. And everything does its own thing. And everything's special in its own way, really. So, so it's fine to think humans are great. I think humans are great. But you don't have to go and say that they're better than the dolphins or that the, you know, Bats are pretty cool, too, and plants are pretty cool. So, you know, I, I, there's no reason to be exclusivist about it. And if you look at the fossil record, it's kind of you want to be the best generalist. Generalists are good at just about everything. Don't specialize too much in anything specific. And so you survive a lot of things. You know, it's much better to be a generalist than a specialist. Ah, okay. So it's your ability to adapt to a, different, to a novel situation. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, a classic one is digits. You want to keep five digits. Five digits means that you're a generalist. You're, you're not very good at very, very many things. Um, horses, they've evolved to only have one digit, which is great if you're on hard ground and things. But if you have to suddenly start swimming, you don't want to have one tiny little... <laughs> One well, little tiny uh, little digit. Uh, humans, you know, very well. humans are extremely good uh, generalists, aren't we? We've got... Uh, humans are interesting. Um, yeah, we, we're generalists in the sense that we can adapt to many different uh, environments and adapt through behavioral change. So that makes humans very generous. But in other ways, they're just another large mammal um, with uh, uh, very expensive brains, right? And so humans have kind of a, a high risk of uh, uh, running out of food um, if things don't go just right, like a lot of other large animals. So being large and specialized and having expensive specializations can be risky. Like if you want to ask what things will survive if there's a real catastrophe, you know, this is why people say cockroaches and rats and things are going to – are, are more likely 
mostly just because there's more of them, and they will survive in some corner on very few resources, whereas humans need a lot yeah. of things to go right. And, and we, we do prize our so-called intelligence above so many other things. I know from uh, Charlie Lineweave, who's one of our regulars here on Fuzzy, he's very dismissive of, of how we think, oh, we, we're looking for life outside the planet Earth, you know, the SETI program and stuff like that, and we want to find intelligence. There's something special about intelligence, but is that really the case? Special is, you know, in the in the eye of the beholder, in the mind. I suppose if you have a mind, you could say that's special. I think that's fine. But, you know, elephant trunks are special too. So, um, you know, everything's got something special about it. So so people get very, their egos get all wrapped up in these questions. And I don't always see a need for it. You know, scientifically, um, you can acknowledge that everything's got things that are u- interesting and unique about it. Um, and uh, you don't have to start making value judgments, you know, where they're unnecessary. Ah, uh, yes, ego is is the word I was looking for very much. Now, your background, uh, Nick, is in, uh, well, evolutionary development of the phylogenetic tree, a big term there, phylogenetic tree. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would say I I work in statistical phylogenetics and biogeography. And I'll just say phylogenetics is the study of phylogeny, and phylogeny is the evolutionary tree. It's Darwin's tree of life. It's the the sort of tree of common ancestry that connects all uh, living species. So you're a um, biology gardener, is that what you're saying? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 you know, I, I, I like, I guess you could say I'm a, uh, it's more of a mapper, right? It's more yeah, like a geographer, up. but a geographer of the tree of life. Um, and just like geographers make maps, you know, we want to map out the evolutionary tree. Um, so if I walk outside, I look at a tree, a, a blade of grass or something like that, or maybe a fly buzzes past, would you say where else on Earth does that occur and what's the connection between here and there? Is that a reasonable Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's two things. There's where does it go on the evolutionary tree? And then, I mean, I use the analogy of mapping a tree, but once you have an evolutionary tree, you can go back and put that tree onto the Earth on an actual geographical map and look at how things that are genetically related are related in space. So how do close relatives, where do they live on the planet? Um, and that's what I study. I study the the patterns and processes that produce the biogeography, the ranges of where things live today. So how did they move around the planet? Where are they going to go when climate changes? Um, and how do we estimate those things statistically? That's what I study. So oh, I was just going to say, you know, an example of that for Australia is um, the protea, which are, you know, um, they're found all across Australia, but they're also found in Southern Africa. And that's about it. So there must be some weird link between Australia and South Africa. So then we can look at the map and, and cosmetic oh, so trip about, and things like that. It's all that. about connections then, isn't it? And marsupials. Marsupials in South America, are they not? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, and the oldest fossils are from China. So it looks like they evolved in China, crossed into North America, and we do, I believe, find a few marsupial fossils in North America. Then they headed down into South America, across Antarctica, and just got into Australia just as Australia rifted away from uh, Antarctica and the end of the Gondwana continent. And so they only just made it here. So they're, they're not Australian at all, really. <laughs> so it's it's a huge oh, and a complicated jumble, isn't it? I mean, isn't it really just chaotic that stuff gets spread all over the place? And then is it like really chaotic? Well, you would you would actually you might think so, but actually there's a lot of structure in the data. Is how we talk about it. Um, and even Darwin said, Darwin has this line in The Origin of Species. He basically says, um, the more closely related any two forms are by blood, the more closely they'll be related in time and space. And so you see this thing where similar species tend to live in, in nearby regions of the planet. 
And then there's some big exceptions, and some of them are these, we call them disjunctions, where these are the ones people get really interested in, where you have marsupials on, in Australia and South America. But often if you trace the geologic history, you can either see connectivity through the continents, or you will see um, certain patterns of dispersal where it looks like you know, some species are actually very good at crossing large ocean bo- uh, boundaries, um, and they tend to be things that either uh, are salt-tolerant or that have the ability to store, have fat reserves so they can raft. Or that might be airborne. Or airborne things, things that are, especially seeds that are dispersed by birds, move around a lot, whereas things with large seeds don't typically. Um, Things that can float move around. And so uh, this is actually part of what I work on is building these models where the probability of dispersal depends on distance. It depends on the traits that organisms have. And, and we of course, try and tease that apart. We, we are living in the Anthropocene now, aren't we? So humans have made a huge, uh, well, ha- had a huge impact on this. So rats across the Pacific <coughs> Islands, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, cane toads, uh, rabbits, foxes. People focus a lot on extinctions um, and how humans have elevated the extinction rate. And I've worked on that a little bit. But there's been less focus. There's some, but there's been less focus on how much have humans increased the dispersal rate. Because it's it's probably it's probably increased by a million times or something, just from humans moving things that never would have crossed the ocean in a million years, pro- literally like they can now cross easily. So one of the interesting things is people do get in Australia, especially we get hung up on the things that were brought to Australia and as pest species and things like that. But what you don't often hear is all the Australian species that have gone to other places. Oh, like, I, I get a little surge of pride when I hear the casuarinas have moved into <laughs> India. Yeah, or the possums in New Zealand, which oh. are a real problem. Yeah. Or the, the great one is the, um, the uh, gum tree. Like all these really bad forest fires that they're getting in places like Italy, Greece... Uh, California, you suddenly find they've been growing gum trees there for a, you know, a good century or so, and we know gum trees like fire. <laughs> um, which part of the U.S. are you from, Nick? So I grew up in Oregon, but I did my Ph.D. in, in Berkeley, California. Okay, which, and uh, gum trees, you oh, see they're everywhere. everywhere? They're everywhere, and there's always um, debates about cutting them down because one argue, the ecologists will say, oh, these are invasive species, we should replace them with native species, but then there's always a another group of actually liberal people that are, are more the save the trees people and they don't really care if they're native trees or not. And so there's always this huge fight kind of between ecologists and kind of, I guess you would call them tree lovers or something. Um, and uh, it gets very political. So when, you know, when do you control endangered species and when do you treat them like anything I, I, else? I do, I do wonder about that. So we've got the program in Canberra to get rid of the Indian miner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, invasive plants like privet and African lovegrass and serrated tussock and St. John's. The, the list is endless, but mm-hmm. uh, you can't get rid of them all. So what do you do? Do you, do you just ignore them or how, how do you decide if it matters or not? Oh, I've, I've actually seen there's an interesting sort of policy recommendation, which is the idea that there's a growth curve. So and there's different, different treatments depending on the stage. And when something first gets introduced, you have a chance of controlling it. Um, but then as it gets more and more frequent, your, your ability to manage it gets you less and it. less. And so yeah. you have to do a cost-benefit analysis of how much effort and money do you put in versus what are you going to get. So, so it's good to try and knock something out early if you can. But once it gets to be everywhere, then you can only do just kind of management. You yeah, can still yeah. have effective treatment, but your goal isn't to isn't to get rid of it. Your goal is just to limit its abundance. Limit the damage. There's a yeah. couple of uh, examples that come to mind there. The uh, fire ant, uh, 
<laughs> yeah. uh, which which found its way into Brisbane and in Queensland. I think it's still around, but it's in very. I think it's under control. And the zebra mussel in Darwin Harbour, and they basically nuked the harbour mm-hmm. uh, just to get rid of it because it it, it just destroys everything and like huge clusters of these things sticking to everything. Mm-hmm. And we we talked about the passenger pi- pigeon. The, we did, uh, you know, and there was a yeah. tipping point there as well that if you are can get a species to a certain point. They won't be able to continue breeding. They'll they'll go down the other way because there'll just be less and less. They won't be able to find each other to breed and things like that. So sometimes it is worth the effort. Yeah, but as you said, you know, you got to work out: is it going? Is it feasible? Right. And if we're to take the ego out of this, of course, there's humans. <laughs> yeah, there's you know, in our pets and everything, and and uh, you know, it's difficult. You can't be a complete purist about everything, right? Um, but uh, you want to try and limit the damage, especially we're in this transitional period, you know, uh, where human society is trying to move to a sustainable um, uh, position. And so we got to work hard to get there. And then, you know, once we're in the sort of stable position where we've, we're not continually driving things extinct, then we can start to look longer term at some of these other problems. And, and I guess you've got to look at the impact. Well, we, we've already diverged from our, our, <laughs> yeah, our, yeah. Our, our, our good conversation never stays on topic, I think. Uh, we're talking evolution uh, with our guest today, uh, Dr. Nick Matsky, who is an evolutionary biologist and on the big scale of things, which is I think really fascinating, and our regular friend of Fuzzy Logic, Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, who's been fighting off Pokemon invasions at his uh, uh, establishment recently, and it's lots of fun. I think we might break to a quick track, and you've chosen this one, uh, Nick, the Rolling Stones. I think it's appropriate, given the topic we're going to be heading to later in the show. Uh, Nick Jagger there, Sympathy for the Devil here on Fuzzy Logic 2 X, your science on a Sunday. And speaking of science, there's some really top science coming up soon for National Science Week. Of Fuzzy Logic is very proud to be part of National Science Week. And here's a few events coming up. Uh, science in action, and we've got Physics at the Pub. That's on of 7pm at Smith's Alternative Bookshops. And adults are accompanied. Children are welcome to this variety night showcasing short performances, acts about physics and astronomy, making physics fun over an ale and vino. Ha <laughs> ha. I totally want to be there. Oh, and this is good for our uh, program today, our theme today on evolution, the creative element. <laughs> Nicely done. Looking, I see what you did there. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm looking for the face, face reaction of my guests in the studio here today, but it's not that kind of creation. Uh, it's putting a bunch of events on National Science Week. Did you ever make your own gin? 3D printing your own chocolate mould? <laughs> oh, wow. I, th- oh, I yeah. thought everybody <laughs> made their own gin. Is it just me? <laughs> uh, how about trying your hand at building a wearable tech? Uh, oh, that, that sounds really cool, and that's lots of hands-on stuff. Oh, and uh, to go with the chocolate one, the Chocolatier Workshop from 6pm on the 16th of August. Lots more coming up for National Science Week. Uh, we definitely want... Oh, you've got stuff going on for the National Dinosaur Museum, Phil. Yeah, we've had a lot of things going on. We've just had our dinosaurs at the Botanical Gardens, which has gone off once again. People have loved going through the gardens and seeing the dinosaurs in there. And uh, we'll also be at Science in Action, so we'll have our table there with lots of fossils that people can come and touch, some of the oldest fossils in the world. 
So, and uh, we've got a new fossil about to show up, but I'm not allowed to talk about it too much. It's opalized. But oh, other than really? That, oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> it's going to <Really>? be cool. <laughs> and you're going to be at Floriard as well. Oh, yes, it will definitely be at Floriard. Um, I think we're going to be at Nightfest. Uh, we'll have some uh, glow-in-the-dark fossils and gemstones and a black wand, a black light, so you can see how things fluoresce. So, yeah, it should be good. Science in Action, very, very cool, and uh, Fuzzy Logic, proud supporter, and... They're a proud supporter of Fuzzy Logic. And our guest today, <laughs> evolutionary biologist, uh, Dr. Nick Matsky from the ANU and uh, formerly from the USA, Berkeley, you were saying. Mm-hmm. And you're studying the evolutionary tree right across the planet, that really big ticket type of stuff, Nick. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's a good place to be. It's actually one of these areas where not all the questions have been answered yet. Now, we, we were talking during the break, chatting as we do during the music, about how to make this tangible for our listeners because it's quite a, it's big, big ticket stuff. It's quite abstract at points. But you were mentioning the Ebola virus. Yeah, so Ebola is a great example of how the same uh, methods that we use to infer the evolutionary history of humans and of dinosaurs and everything else, they can be used on diseases. And actually, a lot of the research funding for these kinds of studies comes from medicine. They want to track where things like Ebola came from. And so just briefly, um, there was a, a pretty famous paper in the journal Science um, that was tracking where did Ebola, this latest Ebola outbreak, come from. And basically what they did was they sequenced the uh, DNA of, of the Ebola virus, and then they estimated an evolutionary tree, and they looked at where are all the deep branches on that tree. And it turns out the deep branches are more from the Congo, um, and they could actually trace the spread of the Ebola virus from the Congo over to West Africa, country by country. And sometimes they could, they also had, you know, there were people out in the field um, taking virus specimens from individuals who were infected. And sometimes they could trace it to individual people who had crossed a border and started a new epidemic in a new country. Um, and it was a dramatic study just because it was using the same methods that we all use in evolutionary biology, but it was especially dramatic because a number of authors of the study died, um, and they're mentioned at the, they're listed as authors on this paper, and at the end it says in memoriam, and it says five of the authors of this paper died because they were field workers collecting viruses in West Africa, and they caught Ebola and died before there was any treatment available. Um, and so it really can be life and death stuff, actually. Um, which people usually don't think of. They think of evolution as kind of an entertaining topic, but it can really be life and death. And, and this would help in the treatment and, and how you approach the... Uh, well, the key thing parents. is you know controlling an epidemic, right? So every epidemic has a rate of spread, and if you can con- control the sources that are spreading it, you can limit the epidemic. Um, so you have to be able to study, like, how is it spreading? In the case of Ebola, it turned out a major problem was... Um, there's there's burial ceremonies where people touch and wash the dead bodies, and this is part of what was transmitting the virus. And so you got to be able to figure out, you know, what is the mechanism of transmission. With HIV, it's often um, in Africa, uh, one of the traditional routes was actually truckers um, who would visit actually prostitutes in different countries, and that was a, a way this thing would spread. So if you can trace the origin and the spread of something, basically the biogeography of a disease, you can start to work on how to control it. Uh, I was just going to say, like, that's a great example of why all these sciences are important. You know, a lot of people might ask, well, why are we spending money on a certain type of science where it doesn't seem to lead anywhere or, you know, they can't see a link as to why it might be important? 
you never know what's going to be important. You never know what these things, what processes might come out of it or what new discovery might lead to a second discovery or third discovery. So it's a perfect example of why, you know, you just can't discount knowledge just for knowledge's sake. Yeah, and, and, and it's fundamental to being human as well. I mean, it's, it's curiosity, understanding the world, but it's, well, it, we're here in a studio surrounded by all this technology and so on. We're having this conversation and it's informed. Because we're, we're able to do it because people... Um, who would have guessed the electromagnetic effect might lead to development of a microphone or whatever? I mean, so... Um, <laughs> who knew Pokemon would get kids out walking the streets? That's right, yeah. <laughs> Basic research is very important. It, it is indeed. Now, you used the term um, deep tree a moment ago. Um, mm-hmm. can, you, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it's sort of a, a deep branch on a tree. Um, if you imagine, uh, if you imagine like a real-life tree, like a eucalyptus or something, you know, some of the branches are very short and they're up at the top, and then sometimes there's these deep splits in the tree far down, um, and those are the ones that can actually tell you something about where something came from. If you if you're thinking in terms of evolution, so it's it's very much like with humans, um, you know, our closest relative is chimpanzees, and the next closest relative is gorillas, and then if you like sequence DNA from a Neanderthal, you know, a fossil Neanderthal, um, you'll see that they're a much closer branch to humans on this tree. And so by looking at the order of branching, you can infer the, the steps by which some trait evolved. So you could say, with just that case, you could say the big brains evolved somewhere between the chimpanzee branch and the Neanderthal branch. Um, but if you were more interested in some feature of modern humans, like modern tool use, you would say that evolved between Neanderthals and modern humans, which is a much shorter time period and a much shorter branch of the tree. So it says how closely we are related. Of course, that's the egocentric view there, isn't it? Yeah, well, but you can do it for anything, right? And it gives yeah. you the number of mutations that have occurred. Um, it's kind of like a clock. It's not a perfect clock, but it gives you some sense of how much time has passed. Um, and so you can actually put a time scale on these events. All right, um, now at the bottom of a tree, or most trees at least, is a single trunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean that life all goes back to a single point? It actually does, yes. And this was in in The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. You can actually see him speculate that we can keep doing this logic further and further back. And he says, you know, I think not only are, you know, humans related to animals, but maybe it goes all the way back. All animals are related and maybe even animals and plants are related. And it, it turns out it goes back even further than that. All life that we know about looks like it's related by common ancestry. So are we thinking a single event in a single pond somewhere or the bottom of a thermal vent or something like that that gets very interesting actually technically speaking you don't have to go back to a single cell um because you know if you trace the the evolution of humans and chimpanzees back you don't get to a single ancestral organism you get back to an ancestral species that's trading genes amongst itself so that's a population with thousands of individuals and probably the ancestral cell was just like that it was thousands or millions of cells in a quote-unquote species, um, they were a gene pool, but it wasn't one cell. Um, people have studied the evolution of life even before that, and there's actually, if you get serious, you have to get into multiple dozens and dozens of levels of transitions to get back to the first chemicals. So there was as much evolution between the very first chemical origins of life and the last common ancestor. Probably there was as much evolution there as there was between the common ancestor and what's living now. Yeah. So you got to distinguish all these different levels of what occurred. I was just going to say, um, one of the, the arguments or one of the things we're trying to work out at the moment is uh, when life, especially tetrapod life, which is animals with four limbs, first left the ocean. And 
it's always been the idea that you know one type of fish walked onto land and eventually it turned into amphibians and then amphibians turned into reptiles. But now it's looking like there might have been a couple of different times where certain different types of fishopods, four-legged fish, have come onto land at certain certain locations on the earth. So it looks like there wasn't just one step; there was a couple of times it happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we we have uh, had on fuzzy logic in the past with with Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, who I mentioned, uh, Dr. Jochen Brox interesting character and he was looking at the first chemical signatures of life back in the rocks oh, yeah. uh, the reverse very first traces of any kind of biological activity and by the way we had this rather uh, lengthy and uh, difficult conversation on air about what is life we couldn't even oh. we couldn't even define the term life so that was that, that is, was a huge amount of fun yeah that's a that's a complex one that's a difficult one now i have heard uh, professor paul davies uh, who is talking about the possible multiple occurrence of the evolution of life, or the, the first occurrence, so ge- the first genesis, he uses the word carefully, mm-hmm. uh, that it might have actually happened multiple times and there might be more than one example. What do you think of that? Well, it's, there's, you got to, dist- like, this is why I said you, it's good to distinguish these different levels. Um, the first origin of the, well, the origin of what you might call life, a chemical replicating system, that could have well have happened multiple times. Um, but that's a different thing than asking all of the life now, does it descend from one population? And we can say quite definitively that all the life we know about, we could find something new tomorrow. Paul Davies has speculated about that. Or we could go to Mars and find something different. But all the life that we've sequenced DNA for so far looks like it has this common origin. Um, and uh, so... So that is basically a fact. Um, what happened before that, you know, any chemical system that produced a replicating system once could probably do it a second time. And if it was happening in one pool somewhere on the planet, it could probably happen in another pool. Um, and so that's perfectly valid. Whether or not you'll ever get evidence to say that is is a difficult Well, question. we are talking, what, 3.74 billion years yeah, ago or something like that, Yeah, it was a long time ago, yeah. It's really hard to get your head around the time scales that are involved here. And you're talking about deep the deep tree? Well, that's called deep time because it's such a massive amount of time. It is very hard. And we, we, get in, we fall into that trap at the museum all the time. We'll just, oh, that's 3.6 billion years. Like, we toss it away like it's just a number. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people like, you know, like, you're so casual with that number. It's a big yeah. number. Most people in the, in the general public, I think, haven't taken the time or they haven't had a, a class where they get taught to really appreciate that deep depth of time. And I think for a lot of people, thousands of years seems like a long time and millions of years seems like a long time and billions of years seems like a long time. And it's all kind of the same, you know, it was it all a long numb. time ago. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it's really useful to to do these, especially Science Week and these other public education events often will lay out a timeline like on the ground, and you have to walk along it. You can see just how tiny modern history is compared to the whole geologic history. And it's a variation of the egocentric approach, isn't it? Because we think our time and place now, me, this individual, Rod, sitting in this year with, by the way, Nick Matsky and Phil Hall, uh, my guests today, uh, that we're somehow we're special. Uh, or are you? Or are we just figments? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel special, but, uh, you know, in the scheme of things, not, of course. Now, um, speaking of special, uh, to kind of push the topic a little bit, uh, another topic dear to my heart is I have a really bad hearing loss and my problem is in the cochlea and a couple of evolutionary biologists are looking quizzically at me saying, why would I suddenly bring up this topic? Well, it's because you, Nick, have studied the evolution of flagella 
And in a little bit of anatomy for our listener here is the inner ear, cochlea, is lined with little sensor cells with their hairs waggling on them. And I think there's a connection here. Uh, Nick, can you pick yeah, this up well, for me? Yeah, well, sure. The, um, so uh, single-celled organisms use flagella, or sometimes they're called cilia, to swim around. Um, and actually sperm cells, motile sperm cells, use these flagella to swim around. It's just a little tail on the cell that w- wiggles. Um, and these go way, but these go back billions and billions of years. Um, and uh, But interestingly, in large organisms, multicellular organisms, like humans and other animals, um, these cilia have a lot of other functions. And so uh, included, I mean, there's actually the sperm is kind of a remnant of that single-celled stage. But the cilia get used for other things. They get used to um, sweep mucus up from your lungs. That's what moves the mucus around. Uh, they get used in developmental biology. And then they get used as sensory hairs in the ears. And also other organisms use them in vision and stuff like that. Um, and so it's what we call co-option, where something changes function in evolutionary history. So um, is that like where I pick up a screwdriver and use it to open a tin of paint? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And this is, you know, this is... People, you don't really understand evolution until you get uh, the idea that structures change function quite regularly. So, you know, bird wings are designed from are, are derived from dinosaur forelimbs, and uh, you know, the the feet of tetrapods are derived from the the, the uh, fins of fishes, um, and it goes on and on. Almost anything you look at, if you trace it back far enough, it'll change its function. And so, the the hairs in the ear are the same way. Proudly supported by the National Science Week, which is coming up in August, and we are really looking forward to it. We're going to have fuzzy logic reporters out there on the ground recording or visit you at the National Dinosaur Museum exhibits. As everyone should. As everybody (laughs) should. Make sure you get out there. It's really important and lots of fun. And we're going to have Graham Walker out there doing his thing. Oh, was this vacuum cleaner-powered marshmallow bazookas? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, a leaf blower, a levitated do-it-yourself hoverboard, and uh, the amazing sites that you can do with everyday items. Which is that all, sounds cool. <laughs> very, very cool. And uh, stalls from over 40 organizations be there. Now, before the break, we were talking about flagella, and your flagella, of course, are all wriggling furiously inside your inner ear because they're responding to the sounds broadcast to you from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. And our guest, Dr. Nick Matsky, evolutionary biologist at the ANU, and our friend of Fuzzy, you officially have that status now. <laughs> Sweet. I'll get you a T-shirt. <laughs> uh, t-shirt, yes, uh, from the National Dinosaur Museum. And we were talking about flagella and an interesting crossover there because flagella, well, you picked this up, Phil. They were involved with the creationist movement in the United States. Yes, they were used as a, as a piece of uh, uh, proof that um, some things are so complex that they must have been designed by a creator or a greater designer because they're so complex, there's just no way they could evolve by themselves because when you pull them apart, each individual piece has no function. And so it was a very important piece of intelligent design uh, propaganda as that was being pushed over the last like, 10 like years or so. Like the blind watchmaker analogy. So, Nick, you got involved at this point. What happened? Yeah, so, well, just briefly, the intelligent design movement in the U.S. arose back in, in the late 80s after there was, a, there was a movement called creationism or creation science, and it lost a major Supreme Court case. 
And after that happened, uh, this term intelligent design got used instead. And it literally actually, they switched the terminology in this book, which is a whole different story. But they deleted creationism language and they put it in intelligent design they language. They did a find and replace in their document, didn't right. they? Right. And they, the kind of idea was they would make it seem less explicitly religious and therefore the, the U.S. court system, which has to enforce separation of church and state in the U.S., um, they might look more favorably on intelligent design. And part of this was to have some scientific-sounding arguments um, that made it seem like there was a scientific argument against evolution. And the, the one they loved the most was this idea that some systems, especially microscopic systems, are so complicated, evolution couldn't produce them by step-by-step -step evolution. Um, and so I got this is part of how I got interested in the whole evolutionary field um, was how do we answer this sort of argument. And so I ended up co-authoring a paper on the evolution of the bacterial flagellum, which was one of their favorite ones. The, the flagellum that you were talking about in humans and other what we call eukaryotic organisms, that's actually a different wiggly, microscopic, swimmy device that has its own origins. Um, but yeah, but in both cases, when you study their origins, um, you can see that just like we do DNA evolution, you can look at protein sequences and you can see that the genes and the proteins that are used to make these are related to other proteins used for other functions. And so I mentioned how it's crucial to understand how things change function in evolutionary history. It looks like that's the way that these systems originated. So in the case of the bacterial flagellum, in this paper we listed the um, about 40 proteins or 40 genes that are used to make the flagellum. We found 38 of them had relatives um, in other systems or were related to each other by copying. So and then two of them we couldn't tell because you don't you can't always find everything. But um, but that was a pretty good statistic. We thought that you know once you actually look for the evolutionary origins, you can find an answer for 38 out of the 40 proteins. And that was that was almost 10 years ago. We did that. Oh, there's countless examples of uh, irreducibility. What do they call it? But mm -hmm. there's a bit of a leap here. Now we can explain it for me and the listener between a protein and a flagella. Now let's just imagine mm -hmm. in the studio we're at the base of this tree. This flagella is about the size of a of a tree. Oh right. Uh, what, what what does it look like? Well, so a flagellum, it looks, if you imagine, I mean, flagellum means whip, right? It's a Roman term for whip. So it's like this whip sticking out of a cell. Um, and that whip is made of thousands and thousands of copies of individual protein units. Which are, they're kind of like Lego blocks, right? So if you imagine building a big uh, tail or a big whip out of Lego blocks, that's what it would look like. And each of those Lego blocks is a protein, and each protein comes from a gene. And the genes are made of DNA. So... The flagellum has thousands and thousands of these Lego blocks, but there's only 40 kinds of Lego blocks, right? Um, and so in each of those has a DNA sequence. And just like with anything else in evolution, you can feed those into a computer and search for all of the other DNA sequences that have been done for all, everything else. And you can start to find the relatives and you can put them on a tree and you can say, oh, well, here is where um, the motor proteins come from these other membrane proteins. The, uh, a bunch of the sort of secretion proteins that actually extrude the, the tail as it's growing, they are related to a system that's called a type 3 secretion system. Um, and then a number of the proteins in that tail are all copies of each other. So it looks like there was originally one protein that was just copied, and then there's now 10 different proteins that are all modifications of each other. Oh, that's fantastic. So you've established a link between the 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 low level genetic uh, processes the the protein the stuff building up gradually and a very incremental tiny step at a time build up of these things now one of the evolutionary arguments of the gaps in the record Phil I'm looking at you uh, give me some examples of this one well I was going to say it's like this is all part of a 
political science kind of theme going on called uh, the God of God, God is in the gaps. So if you think of a brick wall, and the brick wall is missing bricks, that's where creationism uh, uh, people are trying to find arguments. They're looking for the gaps in the brick wall to then argue that point. Mm-hmm. And so science has to then spend a lot of time and a lot of resources pointing out why there is no gap there that you know the, and the flagellum before that was the eye you know the eye is this perfect thing it's a wonderful thing it could not evolve by itself we now know the eye is the most ridiculously designed you know, thing we've got it's so fragile it can fall apart it's a terribly if it was designed we'd better get a warranty with our design because that's <laughs> we horrible we have a product recall yeah so and <laughs> and so the other one is um um uh, uh, transitional fossils. So, in, in especially in paleontology, the argument is there are no transitional forms. You cannot show me something that is half one thing, half another, which is absolute rubbish. We've got a perfect example of that in Australia. Uh, can you think of a, a mammal that lays eggs and is venomous? Oh, um, uh, yes, a, uh, a platypus. So, there's one thing that is half reptile, or maybe not half reptile, but is part reptile part mammal it is showing features of both okay now now here we are i think we're right on one of the great big myth conceptions as well apart from the gap uh the directed evolution so the the platypus is evolving towards a bird right not at all <laughs> um in fact it's like uh it's it's there's one thing we don't say in science which is um primitive you don't like to say primitive you say basal like it's a, a, a basic form. People look at the platypus and say, it's too easy to say it's at the bottom of the mammal tree because it's still got reptilian features. It hasn't quite evolved as much as most of the higher forms of mammals. But it's been around for a long time. That platypus has had just as much time to evolve into its position as everything else on the planet. It is just as advanced, just as highly evolved as anything else. And nothing inevitable about it. No, well, is anything inevitable in science, in in biology? Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, there's this thing of uh, well, we've been talking about chimpanzees and humans. That one of the arguments is, you know, if if humans evolve from chimpanzees, then why aren't chimpanzees evolving into humans? And it, that's not the way it works. We we don't we're not in a straight line with of a branch. Yeah, so so why don't will apes eventually evolve intelligence? Well, they won't if it doesn't help them, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean it's <clears throat> predicting evolution millions of years in the future. It's like predicting the weather, right? It's <laughs> you can there's perfectly valid science about the weather, but the amount that you can predict forwards is limited. In right, part, we don't know what you know. It depends on human politics for the next five hundred years. It could be chimps and gorillas will be extinct, you know, if we're if we're not I, careful. Um, but I think the fundamental thing is getting back to the idea of is evolution a ladder or is it a bush? And if you think of it as a ladder, then you tend to put platypus and things in as rungs on this ladder. And that's really not the right way to think about it. Really, platypus, uh, platypi, however you say it, are, um, you know, they're a side branch on this bush. And they're just a very deep branch on the mammal tree. Um, and just like we, you know... Humans have some primitive characteristics. Having five fingers is a primitive characteristic that goes back to the ancestral mammal and even back through ancestral reptiles. Um, so that's a very primitive feature. But we have other things that have changed, like we bear live young. But plat- the platypus has retained some other ancestral features, like laying eggs. Um, and so egg laying evolved, or ability to have live young evolved between where the monotremes, the platypus and the echidna branched off, 
and where the marsupials and placental mammals. Uh, so from. Nick, Nick, you, you, well, you've both chopped me down in my opening remarks about being high, the, the most highly evolved specimens on the planet. Let's talk another myth conception here, and that would be random. So, oh, so we we got random processes leading to something that's ordered. What's going on? Right. Well, um, there's a couple of important things to say. Um, first, random doesn't mean you know it doesn't mean purposeless or that life has no meaning or that everything you've ever believed is a lie. Like that's the the thing people often get these ideas that when scientists use the word random, they have all this metaphysics attached to it. Really, random is just a statistical statement which means unpredictability to some degree. Um, so mutations are random in the sense that you can't predict necessarily which bit of the DNA is going to mutate each generation. Um, but they have a statistical distribution, and the whole field of statistics is devoted to studying random processes. And just like the weather is random, everything else, it doesn't mean it's totally unpredictable. Um, so that's point one. And point two is that natural selection is kind of an opposite of a random process. Selection it's non-random uh, death or non-random reproduction. Um, and this puts a bias in which mutations are surviving. Um, and this is part of why evolution is non-random in a sense. Okay. So, now, we, we, we do ask people, uh, pardon the expression, to make a leap of faith to accept the ideas of evolution and many of the other ideas of science. So I've been reading a book called Super Sense recently, and in it, he, they, we refer to a study if you were to ask an 8- or a 10-year-old child um, where life comes from, uh, well, they say, well, they, they might have a, uh, I was created, or they, they don't want to have a scientific explanation. And uh, what I take from that is it's more difficult to get somebody to accept what it was a fairly subtle and complicated process in some ways. In other ways, it's amazingly simple. But we're asking people to move their thinking so this is what I want to get from your sense of what is it that makes this an attractive, a creationism, an attractive idea to people? Well, I was just quickly going to say, and it's not just creationism either. Like I've been in conversations with scientists like uh, on an education side of things, and they're all adamant, steely adamant that we can no longer say the word belief. Because what a lot of uh, creationists were coming into museums and saying, well, this is what we believe. What do you believe? And now we're talking on their level. And they were so adamant about this, and I just kind of raised my hand and went, that's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. You can't draw a hard line in the sand like that because any time they get you to step over it, they've kind of beat you. They've won. And they were like, really? I'm like, yeah, I can get you to say the word believe in like five seconds. They're like, go ahead. So, yeah, this is referring to kind of a you know, sort of a debate amongst science educators about do we want people to believe evolution or do we want them to understand it? Um, and particularly in the U.S. where there's this strict church-state separation, this becomes an important thing to some people. I don't get too worked up about it. Mm. Um, I think, you know, belief belief in the non-religious sense is a perfectly valid goal for education, right? Belief in the absolute metaphysical, what's the meaning of the universe sense, that's probably something that should be left to individuals and the government shouldn't take a position on. Um, but belief in just, you know, do you think this is a good explanation? That's a perfectly valid goal. Um, so yeah, but I think in terms of why is this why is it difficult to, for people to understand evolution? I think there's there's two things going on. One is kind of religious objections, and there's many people have been raised with a, a kind of a simple view of the world that gets disturbed once they learn that you know humans haven't been around forever. There's many many millions of other species. Most species have gone extinct before. The Earth has existed for billions and billions of years. You know all of that can be very unsettling. Um, so it can be disturbing 
to someone's religious tradition, but it can also just be difficult to grasp in your head. Hmm. And it actually takes training, you know, or it takes education to get there, and it takes some mental effort. And so a lot of what you hear about, you know, the evolution of Pokemon or something, right, which is a feature of the Pokemon game, like, you know, that's not real biological evolution. That's using it in sort of this popular sense. And you'll see it in ads once you start looking. I saw evolution pillows in the airport, right, which are these these neck pillows that you can take on the plane. And they're just using it as a marketing scheme because the word evolution in some places has this kind of idea of progress, right? And, oh, this is the next new thing. Um, and so that's that's the sort of stuff that's around in the culture I, I, that scientists... You use an interesting term um, um, in your first explanation there uh, referring to uncertainty and what a religious text gives you, whichever one it happens to be and whichever your creed, you can't be wrong because it says there in letters... This is the case. But to me, science is inherently uncertain. At any given moment, you might find that you are wrong. And in fact, if you were to follow the philosophy, it would be really hardcore. Uh, Karl Popper, who says the duty of every scientist is to prove his thesis wrong. The null hypothesis. Isn't that all right? Yeah, well, <laughs> this gets into the weeds. I um I disagree with Popper on numerous things because I'm more of a Bayesian statistician than a falsificationist. But we won't, we don't have to get into that. Um, there's a variety of ways to think about how to do science. And I think the key thing about science is you want your degree of belief or your degree of acceptance of something to to match the amount of evidence, right? Um, and so you can have, be very, very confident in some things for which there's a lot of evidence, like the big, big idea of common ancestry. Oh, so it's not a true false that you right, what yeah, you're saying. You yeah, know, and yeah. nothing's ever completely 100% true. It could be we're all living in the matrix and we have no idea, you know, that we're in a computer game. But, but you know, apart from that, given the evidence we have, it looks like common ancestry is true. You know, there could be another scientific revolution that would change that. So that's one degree. You know, when we get to something like flagellum evolution, we have a lot of hints. We have some decent ideas. It's not, you know, we don't have every last thing worked out. The origin of life is even a little bit more difficult. Um, uh, but we still have some pretty good ideas there. And then you can get into areas like some of the areas where I work on where there's big questions that just aren't answered yet. Like we haven't really measured how much do species move around uh, via riding on condents as the condents are drifting versus how much are they dispersing over the ocean. We know there's some of both, but we don't have like the number. So that's one of my goals as a scientist is that very specific question. All right. So, Here's a fundamental question for, for we three. Why does it matter? Why do we care about this? You put a lot of energy into your creationist uh, uh, combats, uh, Nick, uh, mm -hmm. Phil, you too. Well, if you just want to, you know, you can just all say all, all knowledge matters. You know, you, you, as we said before, you just don't know where learning something's going to take you. So just on a very fundamental, basic level, how can it not matter? You know, like you need to learn these things or else what's the point? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we should have a goal in society. There's this idea of a liberal arts education, the idea that we should be producing from universities students that are um, broadly well-rounded, educated, so that they can deal with the complexities that exist in modern life, right? Um, and I think science education really ought to be a part of that, and sometimes it might not be. Um, I think a lot of students are able to avoid getting some basic science classes, um, and you know, and you can't just stop in formal education. You have to keep educating the public, and it you can see it matter when issues like climate change come up, or fossil fuels, or these other topics where there is some complex science involved. But not everybody has to be a complete expert to get the basics of what's going on, and to make some reasonable decisions about who to listen to. You know, what kinds of studies are ones that are ones that are uh, 
reasonably well supported and are the basis for policy. Yeah. And some governments are better at that than others. Yeah, Nick, yeah. You, 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 you've touched because if I want to chip in my own view on this because being a science communicator – it matters enormously. We are facing incredibly challenging time in, in, for humanity. The planet is under enormous stress. Our future is very, very well. I'm, I'm worried about the future. You mentioned climate change. We've got the climate denialists. Uh, there's no way that we can solve these problems by being fundamentalist. We have to be smart, and the tools of science are critical. And creationism. Look, if someone wants to believe that you know Noah's Ark, we didn't even talk about Noah's Ark, by oh, the yeah, way. We we're going to run out of time, but uh, I don't care. I mean, you know, if they want to have these quaint notions, that that's fine. But you mentioned public policy; it affects the way we run our country, the way we run our planet, and we have no choice but to do this properly. Just to tie up a couple of things we've been talking about, one of the things that was mentioned was um, it's very hard to change the mind of an adult fundamentalist. You know, they. You can, they'll argue with you, you can have that conversation, mm. but you're not really going to change their mind. But one of the things we try and teach, like especially our guides, when you're doing school groups, is school, groups are, school kids are still sponges. So don't, you don't have to argue, just get your point across. Kids aren't dumb. They're going to sit there and, and have two adults, and one is going uh, explaining things rationally and giving you ideas and reasoning and things to think about, and the other one's got their finger in the air, going, la, 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 it's all not true, it's all not true. Who's the kid going to believe and what are they going to take out of that conversation and grow up and, and believe in or, or follow? Yeah, it's um, – we, we make the mistake, I think, people who are science literate of just assuming that we give them more information and so on, that they will naturally uh, – the system of thought is not the same. It, it's like talking to someone from a different planet because the, the rules for truth, false or, or whatever the, the non-binary condition is, Nick – uh, mm -hmm. it's, you, we can't accept it. And so when we're talking to climate denialists, we say you, we can argue about temperature readings, fossil records and stuff like that. They, they don't operate on that level. Yeah, I think so. There's one thing I've, I've been to a lot of science communication meetings and things. And um, one thing I've learned is that an important part of this communication thing is kind of the attitude that scientists and science educators take. Um, and if you're able to maintain a friendly non-threatening demeanor, you know, um, that can actually go a long way. So there's part of it is communicating science and part of it is the hard work of sort of getting to the essential points of some science. But part of it is just not, you know, deliberately offending people, which not, I feel not, like is a problem sometimes with some some not, of yeah, the more egghead not, types, right? Well, so that's why there's such a nasty reaction against people like Dawkins. You know, yeah, well, people either love him or yeah, we don't, don't make, deliberate, don't right? You yeah, know, so. Understand where they're coming from and, and speak their language. Yeah which uh, we have been to doing here on Fuzzy Logic today. And very exciting to have you on uh, the show today, Nick Matsky, evolutionary biologist. I'd love to get you back on again. And Phil, of course, you're always welcome. Always have a good time. That's it for us today. Check out the uh, Ask Fuzzy column. It's about asthma and does doing yoga help. Make sure you keep track of National Science Week. We're going to keep you posted here on Fuzzy Logic. Time to go. Catch you later.